today we're here with the Kaylee Mitchell and Elizabeth Allspock, both who are MFAs in the School of Art. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. Yeah, so we are talking about leadership this season, and we're pumped to talk to you all because uh, you both participated in and won first place in the Social Innovation Challenge. So can you just tell us a little bit about yourselves first, and then we'll get into your project later. <laughs> sure. So uh, where to begin? I'm pursuing my graduate degree in sculpture, and that is a pretty broad area to study. I think when people hear sculpture, they often envision a bronze statue or a marble carving of David. And contemporary sculpture is really uh, progressing to include things like the social innovation challenge that we'll talk about later, but a lot of community activism, a lot of um, relationship building, cultural leadership, things sort of using the art mind and the problem solving of an artist in other disciplines. So I came to a graduate degree in sculpture through a career in higher education. I've been working for about a decade in different leadership roles uh, in different colleges and universities in primarily the arts um, and thought that taking some time to pursue my own degree would really help me get a broader perspective on exactly what path I want to pursue, but also I think be a stronger resource for the organizations that I support after I have um, some more technical training. And uh, my name is Kaylee Mitchell, as she said earlier, and I am um, basically forging this new path in the School of Art uh, for a more focus on business uh, as an artist. Um, the path we're kind of working towards now is called arts entrepreneurship, which is a, a growing field in art. And how I came to this graduate degree was uh, I started a business in my undergrad called GLOW, G-L-O, and it was really successful. I mean, it's still successful. It's doing really well, and I still serve on the board of that. But that project actually started from an art project uh, in my junior class in graphic design. And so growing this idea of art and then like interjecting all of these business-minded techniques and tactics helped this business grow really large. And I'm interested in what that looks like on an academic scale and then also how you can tailor a, a, an existing program and study like co-discipline, co-disciplinary to achieve something more than just business or something more than just art when you leave. Hmm. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. What was your, uh, both y'all's undergrads in? I studied art in undergrad, okay. but I was really lucky to, I attended a liberal arts college that um, I technically took more art classes than other classes, but have a pretty significant base in econ and Spanish and international trade. So I feel like the kind of stuff Kaylee's working on and our serendipitous friendship that sort of evolved from finding each other at the university really stems from both of our belief that the breadth of your knowledge base is really more important um, when you're in a leadership role than the depth in any one particular area. Yeah, and I studied graphic design in, uh, in undergrad. I was one of the lucky few that started college with the exact thing that I knew I wanted to graduate with. I didn't have to switch majors throughout. Um, so I started in graphic design, finished in graphic design, and graphic design has this weird interplay with business already as um, you know, businesses need branding and marketing and communications and graphic design kind of lends itself to all of that. So I figure it was a pretty natural progression to start in this art discipline and then kind of be revealed to business and business leadership. And so I'm excited to use like what I learned in my undergrad and running my business here at the University of Arkansas. I feel like you guys both have such fascinating backstories. Yeah. <laughs> cool. I have We're so not many older than you. <laughs> I have so many questions already. Um, Kaylee, can you? So you said you started your own business, correct? Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I find that so interesting. Sure. So um, I'll, I'll just start from the beginning, but I'll keep it pretty short because it took quite a while to get uh, to get it to be successful and self-sustaining. Um, in my junior graphic design class, we were given this project where we had to go pick up an antique that was $10 or less and could fit in the palm of your hand. And I picked up a teacup and a little saucer. Um, and we brought those back to class and the t we had no idea what we were doing with them. And the teacher said, build a, build a business around this. Like, 
was basically a branding project. We had to come up with a product and then what that product did and who it served and what our the business needed to look like graphically uh, to serve that specific audience. And so I had a teacup and I made um, glowing tea bags that would like light up while they steeped, which I thought was just so fun. I did it because I knew it was going to like photograph really well for the project <laughs> and all this stuff. And I did these really crappy prototypes. They, they got the job done, but they were, I mean, I'm not an elect- I wasn't an electrical engineer. And so I was just trying to make it work. And my teacher was really impressed. I had mentors that were really impressed. And they were like, you should take this to the entrepreneurship center on campus. And so then it got real. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I took it to the Entrepreneurship Center and I had this meeting with the director there. His name's Eric Hill, um, great director, really big mentor of mine. And he, uh, we sat down and you would like pull the tea tag to like get the light to pop on, right? And I had three tea tags and two of them failed. And it was so embarrassing and um, <laughs> I had this friend that was an electrical engineer, his name's Hagen Walker, and he was at that meeting with me because I needed somebody that had the electrical background to be able to help me know what to do next. And Hagen and I are both really like prideful people, we hate to fail. <laughs> and so that was just like the worst meeting ever. Um, we were so embarrassed, we walked out, we got in his car, we went back to his house, we went into his uh, walk-in closet in, the, in his old house that he was renting, and we like pulled out soldering irons and all this stuff. And we were like, that was embarrassing. That's never happening again. <laughs> and so that day, after that meeting, we developed um, technology that is able to sense when liquid is present and activate a light. Mm. And wow, yeah, <laughs> we, it was a long day. <laughs> But we basically, the first one we ever did, we stuffed all these electronics into a travel toothbrush case. Mm -hmm. Uh, We stuffed them all in there and then we shut it and we had these like two probes sticking out and then we just like coated the thing in in, um, hot glue. Because, you know, water couldn't, we didn't need the water to penetrate to to the electronics just to touch the probes. And then we dropped it in a glass of water and it came on and we were like, it's kind of cool. <laughs> and so, long story short, uh, we took that technology. We won the, uh, basically, Mississippi State's version of the Social Innovation Challenge, okay. but it's more based on tech. So we, we won that at Mississippi State um, and got enough funding to do, like, a, a first initial run of these, a more not a toothbrush case run. <laughs> and so for a year, we worked out all the kinks, figured out what it needed to look like and how it needed to work and how efficient it needed to be. Um, and in that time, we were able to submit for a patent for that technology, which we did end up getting. Um, and we actually were able to patent it twice. Um, one is a utility patent and one is a design patent. And now um, you can drop it in a drink uh, and it lights your glass, which was the whole premise mm-hmm. at the beginning. Um, and then when your drink gets low, uh, the light goes out and the bartender knows you need a refill. That was the first premise. And then we got this email one day from a mom with a a kid who had autism and he hated baths. He hated them. It was a very traumatic event every time he had to take a bath. And this mom picked up Glow and put it in the bathtub and it was the first time he had a pleasant experience in a bath. And we were like, there's there's something to that. Kids cared about more glow more than their parents did when they, you know, when their parents were, they would bring them home to their kids and their kids would love them. So now we're in the kids market um, <laughs> and we still make glow for like, we have them in several resorts like MGM Grand and, and those uh, several places in Las Vegas and a resort in Macau. But the kids market has definitely fit us better and we're in, we just got in all of the Cracker Barrel stores mm-hmm. and then Target, Ulta, and Nordstrom's. So. And you did all this as an undergrad? Ye- well, or like started, I like, you started yeah, as Yeah, we an like gave it, Hagen and I, we co-founded the company and we gave it like the legs it needed to function. Hagen still is there, he's CEO now. And I worked for Glow for three and a half years mm-hmm. and then got the option to come here, so. Huh. But yeah, it all started as undergrad. It was 
the craziest, most stressful time of my life ever. That is so <laughs> cool. <That's awesome. laughs> wow. Gosh, I need to do more. <laughs> Everyone feels like that. <laughs> that's, a, that's part of the reason I came back to school is because I felt like I just, if I could, if I could experience the moment of dropping a hot glue toothbrush case into a glass of water and it lighting up, if I could experience the motions and like the eureka of that moment over and over and over again, that would be that would be my dream life. That would be it. That's what I want to do for a job. I don't know what that job is, but that's what I want to do that. You'll create that job. And then Liz, I also had a question for you. Um, could you touch more on, like, I guess, what a sculpture MFA looks like? Um, and kind of, you kind of touched on what you wanted to do, but how you wanted that to play into your future? Yeah, I sort of similar to Keely, I think her comment just now about she doesn't know what that job looks like, but your response that she's going to build that job. Mm -hmm. I'm here to build that job for me, whatever that is. So I, I know I love making things and I love being a fabricator. I was trained in undergrad and traditional ceramics and pottery, um, fine furniture building. So I'm really comfortable in the shop. I spent this morning, like I mentioned, um, monitoring the metal shop down in the sculpture <laughs> building. So I'm covered in soot welding <laughs> just i love that experience but the reality of being an artist is that it's a pretty poor lifestyle and i've really wrestled with that coming from a pretty modest middle class background it never felt like a responsible decision to me to just mm -hmm. go be an artist i need as a young woman i needed health insurance okay. and i needed to be able to pay back my college loans stuff like that that i realistically could not have done and i just pursued the artist life a lot of my friends in undergrad went to be apprentices or went to live abroad and do interesting things with artists and that just wasn't a reality for me so I moved to DC and got a consulting firm job right after college um, I worked primarily for the Department of Energy um, and this was in the crash 2008-2009 and so my strategy was just to move to a big city and get the best job I could figure out as a young person so I was 22 and just moved to the coast um, and basically followed that career path with kind of this underpinning of wanting always to get back into the arts and so every career move I made I slowly thought I was getting back into a place where I could actually fabricate as part of my work uh, and it turns out as you make those moves there really isn't anyone in a leadership role in an organization that's on the ground doing that kind of stuff there's a lot of middle management that's great where you can kind of pop in and drive the forklift if you want or you can pop in and pretend like you can fix a kiln but really it's your team on the ground that's doing that work so in any case i i believe that there are careers that involve someone making sculpture or at least using that creative problem solving um, hands-on and are providing a sustainable lifestyle for themselves and their family and I don't really know what that looks like yet for me uh, part of the reason I'm so interested in the collaboration between Kaylee and me and the School of Art and you all is that I think that there are some really incredible unopened doors in the art field for people with a business mindset mm -hmm. and people with sort of the commitment to being professional and ambitious and creative all at the same time and so for me the sculpture felt like there's enough um looseness in the boundaries of being a sculpture right now kind of what i was saying at the beginning with like the contemporary art field being pretty loose that like i don't know what that looks like a couple kind of concrete examples i realize i've been waxing on a little ethereally um right now i'm working on a grant application with uh it's led by a professor in the paleontology school who studies i believe she studies um snakes and snake evolution but it's basically a lead professor from a handful of different disciplines we have a greco-roman woman that studies uh ancient greek pottery we have a woman that studies geology and previous sort of like greenhouse gas climates and so all of us are basically going to get together and partner with the museum archive to start doing 3d scanning of all of the things that they have in the museum and my plan is to be their artist in residence and so to use their science basically as a launching point for me to make art installations and art exhibits so that's like a concrete way that i'm thinking about sculpture being more of a tool for education and for research um, and for making cross-disciplinary partnerships a little bit sexier, <laughs> um, at least in a higher education setting. Yeah. So that's one way I'm trying to figure it out, but 
I don't know the answer yet. I have yeah. hopefully have two and a half more years to figure that out. <laughs> For not knowing the answer, that was a great answer. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> <you>. <laughs> we don't have the grant yet either, so Chancellor, if you listen to this, I'm just hopeful. <laughs> you know, there's all this conversation right now with, you know, the new donation for the new mm-hmm. school of art that's being made about the intersections between business and art. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes that terminology um, is very conceptual for students and they, there's not a lot of concrete, like, what does that look like? And I think just having you both talk about the things that you just talked about gives gives us an idea of what those intersections can look like. You know, owning a business mm-hmm. and working through art and um, even working in higher ed. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you, so how, what did you do in higher ed and how did you kind of end up on that path? That's a great question. So I, um, what happened? (laughs) I, as a young person, I got the opportunity to move to California uh, with a partner, just sort of a life change. And when I was there, I I had this idea that museums were a place where people still got to build exhibits, which it turns out is not the case. Primarily, they contract all that stuff out. But this museum at UC Berkeley had a wood shop still. And so I got this dream idea that I was going to work there and I was going to build things in the wood shop. Uh, And so I applied for a job that I did not know at all what it was, but I hoodwinked them and they hired me (laughs) into, it was a fundraising role, which is, it turns out, the most common place for artists to work in nonprofit profits is in fundraising it's fascinating the the guy that trained me into the job was a theater major and still did a lot of storytelling on the side um the woman that ended up being our director had studied graphic design or something it's just this sort of catch-all so there's a lot of creative minds because there is a storytelling component but Mm -hmm. I ended up in higher education through a fundraising avenue and then just loved working at the museum, which was the public science center for the university. Uh, And from there was able to pivot into an art and design college. So I partnered my undergrad degree with this sort of other higher education experience to be, um, I was the associate director of instructional fabrication, which is a mouthful, but I had the coolest job. I was in charge of um, all the shops and studios at California College of the Arts in um, Oakland and San Francisco. And so I had a team of about 16 people, each of whom were experts in different media. We had a hot glass shop and a metal fabrication studio and woodworking and all these 3D printers and CNC routers, just this like wonderland for someone who likes to build things. Um, and it was my job to make sure that those shops were safe, successful, accessible people for earth places for all of our students and faculty. Um, and after enough time there, writing budgets and writing grants and dealing with HR stuff and hiring folks, I thought, man, I want to get back in the studio. So I took a leap um, and basically I'm going to take this three years to kind of figure out if it is that leadership role in an organization that really interests me or if I, if it's more important to prioritize the creative mind that I have or if magically I can find some intersection of them both. I just thought of another cool idea um, that I wanted to tell you guys about, about the sculpture business intersection. Um, As graduate students were paid by the college to work about 20 hours a week. Um, And some of my job is actually with Crystal Bridges doing some of their exhibit design. So they, most of that stuff, they contract out to local fabricators. A lot of it's pretty standard, hang this artwork or build this wall, but they have some unique exhibit installations that require a little bit more creativity and problem solving. So they have an exhibit opening in May called Nature's Nation that has uh, three different interactive components. And the interactive components are a little bit more complex for just a regular fabricator to build. So they're giving that to me as a project for my graduate work. So I'm partnering with one of our faculty um, and the exhibit designer there and the graphic designer there to do these three sort of special components of the installation. So that's another way that the art world can kind of overlap with the business and more, um, I guess, industrial world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. So this is pretty familiar to me because my sister is doing marketing and graphic design right now. <laughs> so she's an undergrad. So she's been telling me a lot about how she's like struggling picking between the two because she's had a lot of pressure from like professors. Well, do you want to be a graphic design person or do you want to be like in marketing? Mm-hmm. And so I was just wondering if you guys have any advice for people in that situation, like having to not necessarily pick between the two, but like finding your career path from that. Well, I would say that um, she should think about which side of the 
conversation she wants to be on because um, the conversation side that has graphic designers is very different from the conversation side that has marketers. But it's a really lovely spot if you can sit on both sides. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, marketers usually come up with the plan of attack, like what we're going, what we're trying to achieve, who we're trying to reach, and what pieces of media we're trying to reach them through. And they feed that over to the graphic designers and they say, we need this, 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 and this, and this is the people we're trying to reach. This is maybe the aesthetic we're going for, but they may not even do that. It may be looser than that. They may just let them choose. But, and then they design, the graphic designers design around, design towards that thing and then pass it over back over to marketing for them to uh, like put it out into the world. For me, I uh, loved graphic design um, and I also got a minor in public relations. So I understood the marketing component of it. So I am fortunate enough to sit in that middle spot. And since running a business, I did all of the marketing and, and graphics for that. So it's nice to be able to like see all the way to the end from the beginning as a graphic designer to like say that's what I'm trying to reach or you're taking the job of the marketer essentially that's what I'm trying to reach this is what I think it should look like this is how I think they'll respond and this is what I think they would respond to and then you just do it um one of my goals being a student here and and trying to to build this program. When I left Mississippi State, I said that I wanted to be fluent in, in a lot of languages, not like Spanish or English, but um, discipline languages. Because I think that when you have somebody that's fluent in multidiscipline language, that can sit at the table with um, somebody in business, somebody in art, somebody in marketing, I think that's really valuable because they can translate, especially after working with an engineer Um, that's it's super important because they don't always get along Mm -hmm. so my I would just say what end of the spectrum does she want to work on and I think it's totally applicable to be in one and 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 really study in the other well enough that you can be both Mm -hmm. yeah I think that's interesting too when we're talking about the intersections between art and business because sometimes I think students think about career and then passion mm-hmm. as like two separate mm-hmm. that you can't two, intertwine yeah at the, all. yeah, yeah. How, how can they how can we put things together or you know love the work that I do and I think this conversation is really interesting so many students ask like how do you balance your personal and professional life right but if you're ha- if you have a job that you love mm-hmm. those things are so heavily inter- intertwined so I think that's applicable you know to our business students and really all disciplines like thinking about how they can I don't know like get in both I guess Mm -hmm. um but I I don't know maybe y'all can speak to this but like to me it feels like a new a new thing I'm from the humanities and so my degree is in English but I don't I don't feel like these conversations were as common Mm. when I was an undergrad as they are now like now there's all this conversation around like interdisciplinary work or multidisciplinary skills and so I don't know do you feel like this is new or maybe I think a lot of it has to do with the influx of college students Hmm. um, coming from a lot of different backgrounds Um, because a long time ago people came from a very specific background to Hmm. go to college and it was very easy to focus on on one thing when you're coming from this specific place um, but now I think that universities are seeing that you can't silo off all of these disciplines um, because it's not beneficial. Right. It's like you have to treat the university as an ecosystem where everything depends on the other thing and needs the other thing to survive. And if you, jobs are just different than university environment. Mm-hmm. And so if you have somebody that is, isn't flexible and probably doesn't have a, a ton of knowledge outside of what they went to school for, then they're going to have a rough go in a job. Because you have to wear a lot of hats, no matter what job it is. I don't, I don't care what job you work. You wear a ton of hats. You're a bunch of different people at jobs. And that's just what the work, workplace asks of you. So I think universities are kind of seeing that and starting to break down those barriers and allow for a lot more like interdisciplinary studies. Mm-hmm. Another avenue 
I'm noticing is that no matter what discipline you're in, the workforce has kind of an identical subsection in each industry. You're going to have HR, you're going to have marketing, you're going to have graphic design. And so in some ways, it almost is the school of business that needs to be this foundation because at least in my thus far pretty short career, social fluency and personal fluency of people in leadership is often lacking. Mm -hmm. And the success of an organization really does hinge on the motivation of the people that are showing up every day. Mm -hmm. And it is so hard to motivate people to do good work if they don't feel appreciated, they don't feel independent, they don't feel respected. And in my mind, some disciplines in the university do that really well. Uh, You're cultivated to be a creative thinker in the School of Art. You're cultivated to be an independent researcher in the humanities. As an engineering student or a biology student, you're cultivated to solve very specific problems and there's a right and a wrong answer. And so I think people are noticing that, particularly with the third wave of feminism that's happening and the Me Too movement, people are noticing that there is a dearth of cultural and social leadership in the top tiers of organizations worldwide. Mm -hmm. And the more that we can start to infiltrate the industries that are really dominant globally with people that are socially and culturally fluent to build a stronger, more invested workforce, the better. And I realize that that's all like pretty pie in the sky (laughs) lofty, but I really do believe that as someone probably who will be back in a leadership role in an organization, the best thing that I can do is figure out how to comfortably and competently read the people that I'm interacting with and help them be successful. And it's really hard to get that skill set if you're just interacting with people that speak your language and your discipline. So mm-hmm. I think the School of Art and the Business School share some similarities in that they both have a broader sort of worldview than other disciplines. And obviously, they're all valuable. They're all part of the ecosystem. It's just a matter of figuring out how they Tetris together mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. successful. Yeah, I mean, I agree like totally with what you're saying about like multidisciplinary knowledge and like a whole range of subjects. Because like I'm doing three minors just for that reason. I mean, I want to I want to know as much as I can about a lot of different things, right? And so, can you talk a little bit? I mean, the theme of this season is leadership. So you talked a little bit about how that worked in like just you know everyday life, but in leadership specifically, how do you think the multidisciplinary knowledge helps a leader succeed versus one that doesn't have that knowledge? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the obvious answer is that if you're in a leadership role, you're responsible for a lot of different stuff. And so the more real world experience you have in each of those areas, the more you'll be able to sort of intelligently make decisions. Uh, I also think it has a lot to do with trust and not necessarily knowing top to bottom each of those areas yourself but knowing that the person you hired to do it or that you got hired into Mm -hmm. managing to do it knows that world really well um is critical so i think in some ways leadership i'm really stuck i guess on it being integral to someone's ability to have successful honest critical feedback filled personal relationships in the workplace and if our leaders don't have that skill set then we're going to continue to kind of struggle and I think in another reflection I guess on your your sister's situation Mm -hmm. is that Kaylee mentioned earlier a mentor that she had and I cannot advocate enough for having mentors Mm -hmm. whether it's someone in your class or a faculty member or a woman from your hometown it it just doesn't really matter but having a person that you trust to completely be honest with about the things you're struggling with and the things you're curious about is has helped me more than anything else in my career and one of my mentors is now a dear friend and I've taken on a mentorship role uh, myself and find it really critical to sort of continuing my work so I think in your sister's case like if she's not getting the right feedback that she wants from her faculty look for other ideas and see um, who else can help her kind of brainstorm that middle ground that she's finding herself forced to decide between mm-hmm. awesome and i don't think he has to decide yeah yes Me neither. yeah <laughs> <laughs> artists believe in the gray <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah as far as the leadership goes i think everything liz 
this just covers it all. I, I totally agree. I think it's important to be able to speak the languages of the people that work for you and for them to trust that you speak those competently enough to uh, make the right decision. Mm-hmm. So. And I think being confident enough to speak up if you notice someone else isn't making the right decision. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of hesitancy in the world to be the squeaky wheel. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think good leaders are comfortable being squeaky. <laughs> <laughs> and the more we can encourage students to, to speak up, uh, the better. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Like, speak up in what ways? Like, not just in... in times of like struggle or where something wrong is happening but but in what other ways that's a good a good question I don't have a specific example that's coming to mind um I think I guess people are acculturated since they're really small to fit a social role Mm -hmm. I've always been the loud one so here I am on the podcast (laughs) I think Kaylee fits a similar role but um a good example, a good friend of mine in my program, Mina, is a South Korea is a Korean exchange student, and she's been acculturated really differently than me, and isn't as vocal. And so, I think in some ways it's the speaking up, but also the noticing when you're over speaking up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you asked for a con- like a concrete example. I think even like if you're brainstorming a marketing design and someone on your team hasn't shared anything yet, making sure that they share because there are probably a million reasons why they haven't said anything and it's not because they don't have a good idea or they don't have Mm -hmm. an idea who knows what's going on in their world who knows what happened before they got to work who knows how comfortable they feel around those people um so i think it is more like an acuteness to social dynamics and encouraging everyone to like take their fair seat at the table Mm -hmm. yeah Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. No, I, I, <laughs> no I, I couldn't agree more because as someone who is also like equally loud, I think it's such a hard lesson to learn. I think for people who are very extroverted, at least personally for me, that leadership is not just about doing things. It's also about listening, mm-hmm. stepping back and giving other people a voice. Um, so I'm, I'm just like, I'm really glad that it's a lesson I'm continuing to learn. It, it's not yes. easy, it's not an easy thing to do, but, um, yeah, I just, we've talked about a lot of different leadership. I mean, so many different things have come out of this conversation. Um, but I was wondering, because we've kind of asked everyone this, if maybe you could kind of define, uh, leadership. Like if I said, what does leadership mean to you? Even though it's a mm-hmm. bit of a cliche question, um, could you answer that? The best, I would say the best leaders that I've had the privilege of working for thus far in my time are they're extremely self-critical and they're they're really honest with themselves about their strengths and their weaknesses and they're extremely trusting in their teams to also be honest with themselves about their strengths and their weaknesses and so it creates this culture I mean, this sounds so cliche, but it creates a team building culture where all of a sudden everyone's sort of taking care of each other and everyone's empowered to be not the smartest person in the room on every subject. Mm-hmm. Everyone's empowered to sit back if they really feel like they don't have that much to contribute and to contribute when they're confident that they can. And so I'm thinking in particular, this woman, um, Mara Hancock, uh, is the CTO of California College of the arts where I previously worked in Oakland and she's a great leader and she's often one of the quietest people in the meetings but when she does speak up it's because you know she's considered what she's about to say and she believes really strongly in it and she's also really empowered her team so I think I think it's that I think it's this sort of like ruthless self-awareness and self-honesty mm-hmm. and then creating room for others to have that same skill. It's tough to do. It's really hard to do well. I also, I just want to add to that, that I think like leaders are are super just trustworthy. Like as an employee, you should trust them to like hire the right people for your team. Um, And then they return that trustworthiness to their employees. Kind of like Mm -hmm. what Liz says, like you just, trust your, in yourself that you hired the right person for this job so therefore you trust them to do their job with that with like minimal interference um and then i also think one of my favorite qualities this probably isn't for all leaders but one of my favorite qualities about 
a good leader is their like accessibility to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really believe in leaders that are sequestered from their employees. Uh, I think that they should be um, accessible and that they like are able to give their time um, to their employees as the employees give a lot of their time to them. So I, um, somebody I'm thinking of is uh, CEO of a company and the granted the company landscape lends itself to this where there aren't hierarchies. Uh, you can readily speak to the leadership at any time. Um, but it's created such a positive company environment um, and it it's really comfortable. It doesn't feel like you're being run. You're working together. Um, so, yeah, I would say accessibility is a is a big one and intentionality too. Yeah, I think I would add to my answer felt sort of serious. There's like an energy. <laughs> there's an energy to good leaders that matters to yeah. me, and it's not just in the in their particular field, um, but they. I don't know, they believe in, execute in like community building Mm -hmm. and problem solving positively. It's a yes and kind of Mm -hmm. scenario uh, that I've found to work the best for me when I'm um, working with people in leadership roles. Mm -hmm. And it's something I really strive to do if I'm in a leadership role. Uh, But there is like a an energy to it or an aura it's not just Mm -hmm. cut and dry something you can learn in business school yeah no i don't think i think like the quality that good leaders have is something that is not able to be taught like i think it's something that's like kind of inherent in them and like their upbringing and like the opportunities that they take and take to learn it's just like yeah, it's just like something they carry. It's like you when you like meet somebody that's a good leader, the reason that they are in a leadership role is because of the way they carry themselves and the mm-hmm. fact that people readily trust them and are happy and gleeful to follow their lead. So I do think though, even with that sort of chutzpah or whatever it is, there's a training that a lot of our leaders often don't get that yeah. in powers them to be successful the craziest stuff happens in hr offices (laughs) you just can't imagine the kind of things that our hr directors are confronted with and some of it's really traumatic and some of it's super weird especially in higher education Mm -hmm. you like students come up with the most bonkers things that they want to do and then all of a sudden it's an hr issue for one reason or another but i say that because even if you have sort of that charisma if you don't have the the policy training and the skill set to call up your legal counsel when you need to or you know sit down with your analyst and really look at the finances then you're not going to succeed so it is sort of this balance of all the things that I think we know mm-hmm. we really value in across disciplinary education I also feel like I'm going to mull this question over for, like... I know. Now, <laughs> we're going to have to listen to this. No, I'm going to write this down. I'm going to go home and write a little, like, journal entry about this. No, yeah, I think what you guys said about it, though, is great, because I think we've heard a lot of different answers, but I like what you guys said about, like, trustworthiness mm-hmm. and intentionality, because um, I feel like that's something that's inherent in leaders that we don't often think about, especially with the accessibility as well. Yeah. That's something you never really think about, but that needs to be kind of within the personality of whoever is a leader. Um, so I think those are really good just answers to kind of think about or mull over later. Um, but I wanted to pivot a little bit because I want to talk um, about you guys in the Social Innovation Challenge mm-hmm. a little bit with what you guys did there. Um, but before that, can you maybe tell us what the Social Innovation Challenge is for any listeners who don't know? My understanding, granted I'm still new here, and it's a, I think it's a three, it's existed for three or four years here at the university, so my understanding is that a handful of classes each fall semester in different disciplines take on the task of partnering with a nonprofit in the community, and the idea is that with the energy of this class of students and their professor, 
they can hopefully solve or innovate around uh, a challenge or a problem that that nonprofit might have, but not have the resources to solve themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were in uh, social justice and the arts class with Professor Adrian Callender and partnered with Task or the Station, which is a at-risk youth center in Springdale. And I know you probably have the list better of what other classes and nonprofits were in the um, challenge this year. I mean, there. I think it, there's a lot of different classes that participated. Um, I actually didn't know there was an art class participating until I saw your presentation. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of the students that I uh, saw or worked with were working in the, I think, management classes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, I mean, you have it exactly right. It's it's basically just these organizations that will post a challenge and then different students, faculty, and staff will partner around solving a pressing social problem. Um, but it, it's interdisciplinary. I don't know if all disciplines are participating, but I know so far it's been a lot of business classes, but also art classes and things of that nature. So, um, yeah. Some of the challenges, I'm trying to think. So, we, our challenge was helping this at-risk youth nonprofit build relationships with the youth that already <coughs> exist in their community mm-hmm. that they struggle to get to know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I There were some based around like food accessibility. Yeah. There were others, um, <coughs> some were uh, kind of focusing on uh, marketability, like getting the word out. Like mm-hmm. uh, some were focused on, you know, various aspects of business plans within their organizations, like mm-hmm. how to increase funding in certain areas uh, through business plans or proposals. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of different organizations have participated, everyone from like Beautiful Lives Boutique. Um, there are some corporations that are involved also. Uh, one engineering space was working to decrease the amount of waste that they were producing. So there's a lot of different kinds of uh, problems that are posed. Um, which is really interesting and why it's so important to incorporate the interdisciplinary aspect. There's a lot of different ways to solve these problems. So, okay, so could you say one more time, what what was the challenge that was given to you? And then, like, how did that, what was your solution and how did that solution kind of develop? Um, Our challenge was uh, to help the station, which is um, part of the Teen Action Sports Center. Uh, We were supposed to help the station build relationships with uh, the families of and teens uh, in the neighborhood close to them um, to kind of build this bridge between the services that they offer and the teens that need them. Okay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so that's the, that was the, that's the, the challenge, challenge that was posed. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what your solution was and how that developed. To expand a little bit on the challenge, just so the listeners maybe have more of a frame, the Teen Action Support Center has several different uh, on-the-ground resource locations, I guess, throughout Northwest Arkansas. The one that we worked with is The Station, which is in Springdale, and they have, uh, it's actually a youth reporting center for teens um, that have been, uh, I think it's prosecuted Mm -hmm. and need to report after school to meet the Uh, stipulation of their consequences yeah Yeah, their sentencing and then they also are the home to a handful of different uh, youth hobby groups so it's a robotics club that meets there regularly Mm -hmm. there's an art club that meets there and does a lot of screen printing there's a recording studio Mm -hmm. so there's all of this energy for teens that just need a place to go who might not otherwise have a safe place, but it also is a formal reporting center. And then they also have expanded to have resources for families. So there's a a clothing exchange, uh, there's a little bit of a food pantry, and then one of their staff is actually a trained um, educational advocate. So she works directly with the parents, the families of students in that community who don't the parents who don't feel empowered to advocate for their students so people don't necessarily if you are an immigrant family and don't speak english you might not want to go to parent teacher conferences you might not want to call and say my student isn't succeeding in this classroom can we talk about a solution Uh, and so they also have this educational component so our task was basically to build their business so that they could help more and more and more of the community members around um, around the station 
So the solution <laughs> developed on the ground and in real time through the course of the semester. We didn't know these people. We didn't, we're a we bunch of, we didn't speak Marshallese. <laughs> some of us spoke some Spanish, but really not um, that fluently. So we actually invited into our classroom some of the interns that work at the station. So Larissa, who wasn't able to join us today, and then a handful of other creative interns that are actually staff members at the station became students in our class. And so from the beginning, we were working with residents of Springdale, many of whom were from immigrant families to begin with, to try to solve this relationship building problem. And I think that's actually the linchpin of how we got on the path to success is that solving a problem for someone that doesn't know you think they have a problem is mm -hmm. impossible, particularly if you don't also experience that problem. Mm -hmm. And so by entering with teens or early 20s folks who speak Spanish, who speak Marshallese, who have been in that community and having them say to us, we could get attention in these ways or we could build a network this way all of a sudden we could be the heavy lifting, we could do the, the event planning, we could be there with smiling faces and materials and supplies, but we actually didn't have the knowledge to solve it ourselves. We just had the time and resources to help. Yeah, I think um, us partnering and having some of the students from the station in our class really built out the trust that's necessary to like dig deep into communities that you're not from and mm -hmm. you don't look like anyone there. Right. Um, and so basically what we started to do is we just started to show up in the neighborhood. Um, through the station, we were able to rent a small one-bedroom, one-bathroom, very small house <laughs> in this neighborhood. Um, we started to host class out of that house. We were meeting in Springdale at least two days a week to, to do the class. Um, we were inviting people. Um, kind of uh, important figures from Springhead and Springhead, Springdale <laughs> into our class um, to uh, talk to us about uh, the dynamic of that, of Springdale. And then we also started to show up on Saturdays because our class wasn't a time when people were in the neighborhood. We just wanted to be present and be there to experience anything that may have happened. Um, but. Saturdays were perfect. Mm. The kids were out of school, the families were busy, and almost always the kids were like pushed outside. So, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> I just wanna, I'm I wanna create a clear picture here. Sure. So, you're showing up to this house yep. in the community. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, for class, for your social justice and the arts class mm -hmm. during the week. And then on Saturdays, you're also showing up to this house. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then doing what? The, yeah, the neighbors have no idea why we're there. They yeah. just know. Yeah, that's why I'm trying to figure out. Yeah, it, we basically infiltrated really the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. We didn't really know at the beginning what, how were we going to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. um, all we knew was that in order to build community, you need to start by building relationships, mm -hmm. and so we just started showing up and then things kind of took off so we mondays and wednesdays we would go and have our discussions we would leave the front door open we would bring donuts um the neighbors would periodically come and like wonder what was going on and say <laughs> hey and then you all of a sudden you know someone's name and you can you know greet them the next time that you're there and then on saturdays that's where kaylee was saying we started to get a lot of energy we brought art supplies and so we would set tables out on the driveway with chalk and paint and yarn and it blew our minds the need in this community was astounding within a half an hour of sitting there the first day there were five kids that just had run down the street to come play with us <laughs> there the youngest one was two the parents had no idea who we were they just saw these young people in the neighbor's house right. that had been vacant yeah, and sure. sure yeah the kids will be fine <laughs> um, and then like it really started like once they found out that this was going to happen every Saturday, mm -hmm. like we would like park our car and be like walking up the street and we would unlock the door to the house, go inside and like get a table and walk out and there'd be like 12 girls, 12 girls and boys like standing outside and they like want to help set up everything. So awesome. they were really about it for sure. Yeah, it was great. And so from there, we, we basically built traction through these really consistent 
activations is what we started calling them in the community. And like I said, the kids are the easiest way to get mm-hmm. to know people. They don't know. They have no boundaries. Yeah. They're just excited. And so once we're spending time with the children, then the the families would start to drive by. And at first, I think one mom would drive past the house like three or four times and kind of <laughs> check and make sure that the girls were okay, but she never stopped. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then eventually they would start kind of standing around and watching. And then we would... Um, the kids would actually translate for us. A lot of the, the parents only spoke Marshallese, and we don't speak any Marshallese in Spanish. Um, and then we got the idea that to really advertise with this community for the station, we needed to have a big event. And so we had enough energy, and people knew enough about us that if we threw an event, we were pretty confident they would come. And so we put flyers all over the community. We put a sandwich board outside the house. Uh, I think it was the end of November? beginning of November mm-hmm. we had a few yes, bigger activations along the way we did, a, we did a Dia de los Muertos event uh, a little bit in advance of Dia de los Muertos where people made papel picado and started to um, help one of the other local art centers with their decorating so we did some sort of more concerted mm-hmm. activities and then with the team the intern team at the station threw a huge black party it was so fun it was so fun um the police officers were the chefs so they brought a grill and they did all the barbecuing there were tents and they got a handful of local performers there was a a really killer dj named afrosia i think Mm -hmm. at afrosia a-f-r-o-s-i-a-j follow her on instagram she's great um a celloist a mariachi band i'm forgetting their name can't think of them yeah um, but it was great like people loved it the food was awesome i mean there's probably like 150 people mm-hmm. that showed up which was huge um that had never really happened before in that neighborhood yeah and um, they not in a, like a really long time and least. the purpose being the purpose being to let to advertise for, for the, the station, station. so okay. the station had a booth uh where they were handing out informational flyers mm-hmm. uh their whole staff was there because they were on our team as well mm-hmm. and then their director was there he made a big announcement uh letting people know about the station it was literally their office is two blocks from where we threw the block mm-hmm. party and in addition to the station we had a booth from art center of the ozarks which also has a lot of resources for that community i believe the library had a booth I'm not positive. And then the the Wheelmobile, which is the mobile pottery RV, was there (laughs) from the university. So there were, basically it was a huge activation event where all these underserved folks in the community got the resources brought to their neighborhood neighborhood. as opposed to them, you know, having to go seek them out Mm -hmm. themselves. Mm -hmm. And so in the end, Aaron, um, the director at the station, basically... I think feels, but I could probably make a stronger statement than that. I'm not going to speak for him, but that the the young children that were particularly participating in these events, most of them were 12 and under, mm-hmm. but in two years, they're going to be the teens that are going to the station. So there isn't a ton of evidence that we got teens to start at the station right. now, but there is a lot of evidence that we've built energy in that community uh, to take advantage of the resources that they already have, the educational associate, the um, clothing exchange, some of the after-school activities, but also that all of these younger children are going to be the next audience for the station. And so that great work of the Jones Center Trust, which is the primary funder of this organization, um, can have a longer legacy mm-hmm. as it reverberates as those students grow in their school years. Mm-hmm. And it's continuing. So Adrian Callender, a professor who led our social justice, in the arts cl- social justice in the arts class in the fall, is teaching an arts entrepreneurship class this spring. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was at a, an opening at Walker Stone House last night, an art opening for the ceramics folks. But she had one of the station interns, a young man named Omar, has his own clothing company. Mm-hmm. So he was at Walker Stone House actually making clothes and had a little pop-up shop. So it's starting to become this symbiotic relationship between that community and the university to hopefully um, lift each other up simultaneously as opposed to just being um, like a project Mm -hmm. for a class. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately what all of our work has led to is essentially this like model that can be like scaled and replicated and like transferred to other places. So what it needs is it needs a, class 
needs an organization and it needs like a target neighborhood audience, mm-hmm. something along those mm-hmm. lines. Um, and the class and the organization almost become one, working towards the same goal, which is connection with that community. And you do that through all of the through all the ways that we did in Springdale, which is putting your feet on the ground, showing up, doing putting the work in, um, and just continuously trying to make these connections. So um, that model is is what we were able to win the social innovation mm-hmm. challenge with mm-hmm. was uh, how it could it could go anywhere scalability mm-hmm. right yeah. yeah. Um, so I was there and I, I saw your presentation, which was really awesome uh, and very interesting. And um, one of the things that you had at the end of that presentation was a bag mm-hmm. um, with some art on it. Can you talk a little bit about what that was and what it was for? Yeah, so we, um, the last Saturday, Saturday of the class that we were going to be spending um, with the kids, we actually invited them to come to campus to kind of closed the loop so we went to them and got to experience their lives and then we were going to bring them to us and like let them see where we come from and what we do and so we invited these kids to campus and they came and they got to hang it hang out in our um our 2d lab which is like a huge print lab in the art school and um draw paint digitally um and then, so we took all of their like super fun, like wacky, crazy little digital paintings and we printed them on fabric and Kim Tomlinson, which was, she was like a silent member of our group. We wouldn't have had that bag if it wasn't for her. Um, but Kim sewed the bag and then it, it became like another piece of that model so that this model could potentially generate money mm-hmm. for the neighborhood. So um, that bag could go to 21C Museum and Hotel as like um, something that you could purchase. Um, And we had this partnership with 21C where they were willing to put that bag in their motel and then we could transfer that model to any 21C um, hotel in, in the nation and the purpose of that profit was to build out these micro loans for the the neighborhood. It wasn't like our ultimate goal to do that, but um, our you know our ultimate goal was to create community and create relationships and and build bridges. But if we can make those people money from something that they did on their own, they just don't have the resources to do it, or they didn't think they had the access to resources to do it. Then that is like awesome like the gold star it's great the I think the linchpin of the whole model from my perspective is that the world is filled with these nonprofit organizations Mm -hmm. that have worthy missions and every single one of them for the most part is strapped for resources whether it be funding often human resources they just are understaffed almost all the time Uh, and their community is already in need because they're being served by a social organization. And the beauty of a university class is that it's full of energetic people power. And so by taking this sort of cavity in a nonprofit with a social challenge and filling it with ambitious energy of young students, you can already solve a need of an organization by just giving them more manpower. Mm-hmm. But without prescribing what it is exactly they're gonna do, you can actually use the creative potential that already exists in that neighborhood, and you can harness it into a product for itself. And so the idea in this case is that the awesome artwork of these students can be put onto tote bags, or we ended up making some pillows that mm-hmm. we gave back to the students. They, I ran into <laughs> them at um, Potter's House. Shout out to Potter's House, love you. <laughs> I ran into them at Potter's House uh, the other day, three of the students, and they told me that they sleep with the pillows that oh. we made, which is so <laughs> cute. I, uh, Leo and Louise and Gracie, love you guys. Uh, but the idea to, what Kaylee was saying is that um, universities all over have 
these groups of young people that are looking to learn stuff and hopefully contribute. And if you can partner that class at any university anywhere in the country with a nonprofit and that nonprofit's community that they're trying to serve, that triangle and the potential energy within that triangle um, can do some pretty incredible things. And one of those things could involve raising revenue for the nonprofit in the neighborhood that they serve. So ideally that model um, could scale um, with our partner, 21C, but potentially yeah. any right. museum with a gift shop anywhere could sell yeah. that kind of stuff. Any mm-hmm. kind of relationship yeah. you have with a more commercial-based yeah. business. We but kind of blew our own minds. We felt <laughs> shocked at how along the way when we were showing up on Saturdays, we really didn't know what right. we were getting ourselves into or what the traction would really lead towards. And then when we sat down and really reflected on what we had accomplished, it was much more significant than I think any of us really thought we were going to yeah. get into. It was cool. Yeah, That's really incredible. I mean, that's awesome. That's yeah. just, I, I know I've said that a bunch on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's, been my main, uh, that's been my main speaking point is that's really cool. But it is really cool. Um, congratulations to you guys. Yeah, that's hey, thank yeah. you. Thanks so much. Really neat thing to do. I, I really like this idea that you were talking about, about working with the community mm-hmm. instead of working for. Mm-hmm. Um, because like mm-hmm. you can, like in this example, you showed the community that the resources were there instead of just, you know, like throwing money at the problem and hoping that it solves it, right? Because, <laughs> I mean, a lot of times it's like, oh, you know, you can donate and donating is great. But when you really develop the connections and the ties with the community, that like it grows exponentially and it will help the community more in the end because they realize they have the connections there. Mm-hmm. There's this um, excellent TED talk exactly about that. Uh, it's called, If You Want to Help, Shut Up and Listen. Mm. Um, and it's by the author for Ripples in, on the Zimbezi. And it is uh, basically saying like, um, you know, if you just try to throw money at a problem, it's dead aid. You mm-hmm. have to like, actually engage with the people who are experiencing mm-hmm. the problem because they may have they may have the real solution and, and what you think they need is probably nothing like what they right. actually need. Right. So right. yeah, service learning theory, there's a lot of conversations mm-hmm. about working with rather than for or mm-hmm. writing about communities. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, I, as you were talking about that, that's what I was thinking about. Um so we're gonna leave you with this last question that we ask everyone. Summer's, Summer always asks this question, I'll let Summer ask it. <laughs> Since all I've said is it's cool, I better ask a real question. <laughs> um, so, is there anyone in either of your lives who you think of as like a, a role model or a leader in your own life? And it doesn't have to be someone you know personally, but just someone who you consider to be a leader in your own life who's helped shape that idea of leadership? Mm-hmm. I mean, mine may be cliche, but my dad's an excellent leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and from someone who has worked in a business and worked outside of business and just, you know, had jobs and things. And he's a really great leader. He's super trustworthy. He shows up. He's really accessible. And my dad's like an excellent encourager. Um, and encouragement costs like zero money, but it goes <laughs> really, really far when you're trying to get people motivated. Um, he so and he's like the sweetest man and I love him so much. And he's <laughs> he's really um, good about not just saying it. He my dad does it. He leads by action, um, which I think is like a really huge part of leadership. Is like if I'm going to ask you to do something that I should also be willing to do that thing. And so my my dad does a really good job of that. He's been a really good role model for being like a a good leader and, and being just like a wholesome good person, which I think is what leaders should be. <laughs> I'm struggling to answer that. I have so many ideas. A lot of them are personal and probably won't be very valuable to the listeners. Yeah, that's what I feel like. Nobody does my dad. <laughs> the woman that's coming to mind is um, Alexandria Nicasio-Cortez. And I say that because all of the testimony that recently has been all over the news with the Michael Cohen case, she spoke up. She was the squeaky wheel in that mm-hmm. testimony. And I say that because she 
is the only, from both of the parties, all of the parties represented there, she's the only one that asked specific questions that led to more information to further the investigation. She just, I think despite your political leanings, like I, her, as young as she is and as ambitious as she is, getting elected as the youngest female mm-hmm. congressperson from the state of New York, and I believe nationally, I think that is just so commendable to me. She has something about her. She's got that energy mm-hmm. that we were talking about earlier in the podcast that I wish upon anyone ever trying to be a leader. I think no matter how you feel politically or in today's social climate, like she's she's a fireball to mm-hmm. watch um, for her leadership mm-hmm. skills. And I think um, the more we can pay attention to her and other particularly young female leaders nationally, the better. Awesome. Thank you so much yeah, for thank you guys so coming much. and yes. sharing your story with us. This has been really insightful and very interesting. Thank, thank you for inviting us. This was fun. <laughs>